Romans chapter 6. I really don't like it to be able to, to, to have to sit in the congregation and, and just almost have to listen to the singing rather than participating. But as you can hear, I've got a little something going on with my voice. And so I wanted to save it for uh, this hour and, and uh, trust it out that uh, everything will go well enough for me to be able to communicate. But I entered into the words of the songs, and it did seem a little quiet in the singing. And when I get up here and look around, I see there's a lot of folks missing. And so maybe there's, I don't know what all's going on, but I'm thankful that um, we are here together. I am departing from Matthew today to go over to Romans to bring a message on the subject of baptism. Because we are going to, as you know, have a baptism today following the message. I want to begin reading in Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, and I'll read down through chapter 6 and verse 11. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Or as you may be familiar with the old King James, God forbid. That's not a literal translation, but that gets the point across. Absolutely not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. And these are my words, nor us in him. And that really is the thrust of this passage, our our union, and what that means for us in relationship to sin and death. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. He ever lives. Likewise, you also... Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. In the first five chapters of this letter to the saints in Rome, Paul has been explaining what he means by the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God Unto salvation. To everyone who believes. That's Romans 1 and verse 16, which I, and verse 17, I believe, are the thesis statements to this whole letter. And he has proven in the first two and a half chapters of this letter that all mankind, Jew and Gentile, are under the guilt of sin and God's righteous. Judgment. Every sinner who continues in an unrepentant, unbelieving condition 
will eventually face the wrath of God in the day of his righteous judgment. Now, thankfully, Paul doesn't end there because there is more to the story. In other words, more to the gospel story. In fact, we could argue that that's not really good news. But it is necessary news. It is necessary news of truth. Sometimes we refer to it as the bad news, but it's the honest news. It's where we are. No matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, and of course Paul had to had to deal with that because in his day, as he was a Jew, satisfied in his own righteousness that he found by way of the law, which was really no righteousness at all, that God would accept. And he was having to demonstrate that. And so not only Jews, but Gentiles as well. In other words, all men. But then Paul, in chapter 3 through chapter 5, shows that the righteousness that we need, we who are unrighteous, we who do not have the righteousness of God, we the righteousness that we need to bring us into a relationship of peace with God comes only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You understand, you cannot earn your way into favor, into peace with God. No more than Jacob could earn his way into favor and peace with Esau, which is a thought that came to my mind when we were uh, going over that earlier in Genesis. It was by one man, the first Adam, that all mankind in him was made or constituted righteous, Paul speaks of that in Romans chapter 5. And it is by the second Adam, Jesus Christ, that all who are in Him are made or constituted righteous. So it's vital that you be in... You are in one or the other. You are either in Adam, therefore in your sin, or you are in Christ, and therefore in the condition of being righteous. You you are one or you are the other. And so Paul concludes in chapter 5, verse 21, As sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he concludes in chapter 6 with verse 23, which I, I see verse Chapter 5, verse 21, and chapter 6, 23 is sort of bookends to the whole chapter 6. But he says the wages of sin is death. So if you continue to be under sin as your master, it's going to pay out wages. And the wages, the only thing it can pay out is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our our Lord. And Therein lies our hope. Well then, this talk of faith in Jesus and the grace of Jesus being greater than all of our sin, and even, as he says in verse 20, even magnified in the context of the law's purpose to enlarge sin, however you take that to mean, in some way, the law expands sin. It, it makes sin greater. But, but grace is greater than that. And so as sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And so in that context, it, a question is, is prompted in verse 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If it's true, the more sin, the more grace doesn't it make sin? Doesn't it make sense that we should continue in sin? Because the more sin, the more grace. And so, if grace is magnified by the increase of sin, well, let's just increase our sin. And that was one of the, presumably one of the thoughts that the Apostle Paul was engaging in his own mind as he wrote. He figured there were those who would think that way as they read the previous chapters and truths that he was putting forward. And so Paul answers this question in chapter 6. He begins to answer it here anyway. And it involves a reference to baptism. 
And, 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 it, and it involves a reference to baptism to explain the nature of the believer's relation to Christ. And so he says in verse 2, certainly not. And he could have stopped there. He could have just said, certainly not. God forbid. And moved on. But he doesn't move on without explaining why it is so. Paul takes the believer back to the beginning of his conversion. That's what I see in verses, especially in verses 3 and 4. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Actually, 2, 3, and 4. He takes them back to when they first believed. What happened? There was an experience in which through faith in Jesus Christ, our relationship to sin was changed. How shall we who died to sin? It's it's pointing back to something that happened at a point in time. We who died to sin, how shall we live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Do you not know? That's actually a strong word is used there. It's a word actually that could be translated. Are you ignorant? Do you not understand what happened when you believed? And some people may not understand. You know, you can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and something really happened to you, but you don't really understand it all. And so this is part of the growth in the Christian life. As I've tried to say to you before, just because you hear something that's fresh or new that you didn't hear before doesn't mean you're all of a sudden are now saved. But we grow. Do you not understand what happened when you believed and and what you confessed in baptism? If you understand that, you wouldn't ask. If you understood that, you wouldn't ask the question that was asked in verse 1. Because you know, your experience was, you died to sin. You are living that experience. Something that really happened. Baptism is not just a religious ritual or tradition, hence the title of the message. Baptism more than a ritual. It is the public expression of a, of, of a dynamic life change in relation to Jesus Christ. Water baptism is, and, and I'll be emphasizing this again uh, along the way, but water baptism is meaningless if disconnected from the spiritual reality it expresses. Now, there are those who come to Romans 6, 3, and 4 and say nothing about water baptism and only talk about what they would call spiritual baptism. I don't want to get into that debate. But what I would say, because water baptism is meaningless, if disconnected from the spiritual reality it expresses, I believe this text is fundamentally important in connection with the New Testament church ordinance of baptism. Water baptism is a public identification with Jesus in His death and resurrection. We need to understand what's going on. You see, death to sin was accomplished by Christ when He died. Over in verse 10, Paul says, For the death that He died, the death that Christ died, He died to sin, in relationship to sin, once For all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so back in verse three, or excuse me, me, verse two, he says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? How did that happen? When did that happen? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? The death of Jesus Christ was a substitutionary sacrifice. What does that mean? He died in the place of. It was not his sin that he died for. He took upon himself the sins of those for whom he died. The guilt of those for whom he died. And it was so personal that the scriptures referred to it as we being with him in his death. 
First Peter 3 and verse 18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Jesus, the just for the unjust. That He, Jesus, might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The glory of the Father, as Paul says in verse 4. We'll come back to that. For 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. But Paul is arguing here for more than a legal standing in Christ. That really is what he's been emphasizing as he's been talking about the doctrine of justification or God declaring sinners like you and me righteous, who are unrighteous in ourselves. He declares us righteous in Christ. But here in chapter 6, he is moving his thought beyond that. Or maybe it would be better said in conjunction with that. He is speaking of a change of relationship to sin. Because of our union with Christ. So, Paul's testimony becomes our testimony. I have been crucified with Christ. Can you say that? I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You hear a relationship there. There is a union that has been formed with Christ. When sinners believe unto salvation, what Christ accomplished in His death to sin, death in relationship to sin, is applied to every believer. There is no exception. And this is why Paul can say what he says. It makes no sense. How, how shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? He's not talking about a special category of people here. Let me rephrase that. He's not talking about a special category of Christians here. Because every Christian has this testimony of dying to sin. And so when, believe, believe, when sinners believe unto salvation... This is applied. And so this, this phrase, baptized into his death, in verse 3, this speaks of our identification with him in the death that he died. We identify with him in baptism. That's exactly what's going on in water baptism. It's very similar. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the same language is used of Israel, of the, of the, of our fathers, as Paul calls them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verses 1 and 2, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. And he says, all were baptized into Moses. That's the very same wording as we find in our text. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. In other words, there was a, there was a relationship to Moses that was entered into. There was an, there was a, an identification with Moses in that baptism that is being referred to at the Red Sea. And so we come back to our text and this is the idea in our text, in relationship to the believer who believes in Christ, he identifies with him. This is the idea of the word baptized into Christ Jesus. They were baptized into his death. And so when we believe in Jesus Christ, by his spirit, we experience union together with him in his death. I got to thinking about this. How This doesn't make sense. There's mystery language here, but it doesn't. We talk about union with Christ. I'm thinking, well, I'm not I, I, I've not touched Jesus. I, you know, the Bible talks about the marriage union and there is a physical dynamic to that marriage union. And we don't. We don't experience that in our relationship to Christ. And so sometimes it gets to be almost a befuddled thinking. What is this about? Well, it helped me to remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And it was in verse uh, 4. 
17, verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And so we are joined in union with him in our spirit. Now, I think there's more to it than that in the mind of God. He sees all who are his in Christ. And so there is absolute security there. That's that's when we talk about unconditional love. That's where we go when we talk about that right there, because nothing can change that. But we die to sin, Paul says, in his death, we die to sin. There's a real impact. It isn't just some sort of theory. Sin's penalty against us is removed. So when Paul says that we were baptized into Christ Jesus, we were baptized into his death, what happened? Sin's penalty against us is removed. We are delivered from the wages of sin. There's no threat of condemnation because we're united with Christ in His death in relation to sin. And that's as far as some people go. But Paul is arguing it's more than that. When you die, when you are baptized into his death, you die to sin in another way. And that is sin's power over you is broken so that you are no longer held under its absolute bondage. Sin is no longer the environment in which you're comfortable. Sin doesn't hold the same pull over you that it once did. This happens when you believe and are baptized into Jesus Christ, His death. Sin still affects you. So Paul is not saying you don't sin. In fact, you die to sin, but sin is still alive. Sin has not been eradicated. It's not gone. And that's the ultimate hope of the believer. There's going to come a day where we will be totally separated from any, any of the impact of sin. Totally, completely, physically, spiritually, in every way. In fact, that's part of what Christ has promised to do in restoring all things. But we're talking about life right now. And while sin still affects us, we are dead to its attempt to characterize our lives as it once did. In other words, as you've heard it said before, we are not what we once were, right? We're not what we want to be. We're not even, not only what we want to be, there is the wanna there, but we're not even what we're gonna be. That's our desire. We're certainly not who we were when we came to faith in Jesus Christ. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we die to sin with Him. That's important. With Him. So what happened? Our family identity, our family identity, which was in Adam, he's talked about that in chapter five. Our family identity in Adam is changed. I believe that's at least what is intended in verse 6 when he says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That there's an identity change. We obtain a new identity. And what is that new identity called? The new man. And what is that new man? It is the life of Christ. I believe we could even say it's uh, without... Too much struggle, and this could probably be debated, but that seed which is in you which cannot sin, John talks about. That's the man that you put on. That, that's, the, that's the one that we have the responsibility of clothing, of actually growing to look like that new man, which Paul talks about in several places. So baptized into his death is not merely a profession of faith. That's not what's going on today. Well, there is that. But it's not merely a profession of faith, but it's a real experience of faith. It is professing a real experience. 
that receives what his death, the death of Jesus, accomplished for us. This is why Paul could go on to say what he says in verses 11 and 12. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. How can you reckon? How can you account yourself to be dead to sin if you're not dead to sin? And the only way that you're dead to sin is if you are with Christ, you are in Christ, so that his death is your death to sin. Likewise, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. That would be an absolutely useless command or exhortation or imperative If you have not experienced baptism into the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. So baptism in water does not produce death to sin. But it declares that death in our union with him. Burial in the water of baptism proclaims the believer's death to sin in Christ that then results in newness of life. And this is the flow of thought here. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So water baptism is an empty ritual if you have not been joined to Christ in faith by the Spirit. God made his son to be sin for us so that when we believe, we are baptized into Jesus Christ by his spirit. You heard what I said. When we believe, there is a union that takes place. There is a joining together with Christ. An experiential joining together. His death to sin becomes our death. We become one with Christ in real time. We could talk about eternity. We could talk about, we could talk about other aspects of union with Christ, but that's not the point with this baptism, water baptism. It is what we experience in real time. And this is what is confessed in water baptism. And I say this because there are those who say that water baptism actually joins you to the death of Christ. And there are denominational groups that teach this. There are pedo baptists that teach this. And there are also those who practice immersion like we do who teach this. And that's grossly errant. I would say dangerously errant. What they say is that before water, there is no actual union with Christ. And it is when you go into the water and come out of the water that you are then joined to Christ. Or when water sprinkled on you, depending on the religious group that's teaching. And thus, there's no justification before baptism. Of course, this flies in the face of all that Paul has taught in the first In chapters 3 through 5, and you know that I'm not going to belabor that point. So water baptism corresponds to the reality of the believers, of the believing sinners union with Christ. Okay, water baptism. It is an identification. But water baptism corresponds to the reality Of the believing sinner's union with Christ. And maybe we should add the living reality. That's why Paul says in verse 4, Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. Since we were baptized into his death by faith when we believed, we are buried with him through baptism. Buried with him through baptism. Now, that's very realistic language, isn't it? In its realistic language, speaking of a real relationship that is represented by a real physical act. 
Much like when Jesus said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Oh, really? Yes, really. In the sense that the bread is real and the eating is real and all of it represents something very real. It represents the body that was broken, the body that bore your sins on that tree. And then the cup representing the blood that was shed and the remission of sins that comes through the shedding of that blood. But but you are really eating that bread and really drinking that cup representing something that really happened and that you are really participating in by faith. And you understand baptism is the same. These are the two gospel ordinances in the church that proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. In baptism, we are really identifying. Doesn't this raise the significance of baptism just a little bit? I mean, brother, when you go into these into this water today, it raises the significance of what is going on, right? This is not just a ritualistic act. We're really, Joshua is really identifying with the real Jesus who really died to sin, was really buried, and really raised from the, from the dead. He lives. Notice what Paul says in verse 4, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Just that just as, even as Christ was raised from the dead, if we have identified with Christ in his death, we are also by necessity joined with him in the likeness of his resurrection. And by the way, this is true in the present. Oftentimes we think of the future, and it is true in the future. And I think he talks about that here in Romans chapter 6, and I know he does in chapter 8. But when you are joined to Jesus in his death by faith, and that is confessed in baptism, you are also confessing a union with Christ in his resurrection. And this is important. In fact, it's absolutely necessary. In fact, if all there is is the death of Christ, you have no life. You are still in your sin. And you haven't died to sin. You are dead under sin. And death will be the only thing you will face because of sin. But Paul says, no, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. That's an interesting way to speak, isn't it? And what would you say if you were writing this? That just as Christ was raised from the dead by... By what? By the power? By the power of the Father? And certainly, that's true. In fact, the word by, that's translated by, is a word that can, that can mean by, by means of. So this is the way it happened. And certainly, that points us to the powerful essence of the Father or of God. And we have that in Scripture, Ephesians 1, 19 and 20. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 14, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. And so certainly when he speaks here of, the, of being raised by the glory of the Father, we don't exclude the very power and the, uh, of God. But the, the glory of God includes more than that. It, the glory of God is also speaking of not only the means by which he was raised, but, but the basis upon which he was raised or on account of 
the glory of the Father. Because of the glory of the Father, He was raised. And so in this sense, the glory of the Father includes more than than just raw, infinite power. It also involves the, the wisdom of God, the justice of God, the love of God. It is, it is all that He is. And so, because of who He is, by the glory of the Father, Christ was raised from the dead. And let me put it to you this way. The glory of the Father necessitated the resurrection. It wasn't just that He could raise Him from the dead because He was powerful enough to do so. It was that He must raise Him from the dead. As Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, death could not hold Christ. You see, the very purpose of, of God sending His Son into the world the very, is the fulfillment of that everlasting covenant, which is a covenant of, of love, which was the intention of establishing a new humanity in newness of life. Do you see that? A newness of life. A quality of existence. An atmosphere that's different. And this newness of life involves a sharing in the glory of the triune God eternally. And that required that Christ be raised. There is no way Jesus could have not been raised. The glory of the Father in relation to the Son depended upon it. But listen, the glory of the Father in reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ has you in view, believer, and the one who is baptized. You notice what he says in verse 4. He says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life? There almost seems to be a bit of disconnect there unless you understand that what has happened to us in our union with Christ is related to this glory of the Father. And so, we, our present walk in newness of life is evidence of His resurrection life in us and the promise of our being joined together with the Father and the Son and the Spirit eternally. But that's not just something way out there. And it's not just a position that we are in right now. It's something that we are actively involved with in this life. It's called a newness. Of life. That's Paul's argument here. This is why it makes no sense that if you have died with him, that you would continue in sin because you possess a newness of life. The resurrection life of Christ. Being united to Christ in His death and His resurrection. Look at verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of His death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of His resurrection. And I believe at this point we could say that Paul is talking first about the resurrection life, the newness of life with which we live and overcome sin in this life. But it doesn't end there. It includes the resurrection of life at the end so that death, death doesn't overcome us. We're dead to death as we are alive to God. And so there's a sense in which we could say that baptism is manifesting, is showing this, all of that. Being united to Christ then in His death and His resurrection means more than we are not under the condemnation of sin. Thank God we are not under the condemnation of sin. And that's fundamental. 
If we were under the condemnation of sin, there would be no glory that we would be participating in. Not the glory of the Father that's talked about here. But what this means is the, the spirit of power that raised Jesus is the same spirit that is in every believer. Would you flip over to chapter 8? Just let me read. I think these, these verses connect well with the point Paul is making here. Beginning at verse 9, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. So there's still going to be the experience of a bodily death. But that's not the end of the story. But The Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we're debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. You see, it's because of who you are and your relationship to God in Christ and his spirit in you. You are not debtors to live according to the flesh. You still have the flesh. The flesh still dogs you. The flesh still causes problems. But you don't have to follow it. And you're the only ones who don't, who have the power not to. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, and that's you, you have the Spirit, believer. You put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. And so this newness of life, it's a different life. And it's a life that is that is dependent upon the death and the resurrection life of Christ, who then gives to us his spirit and enables us to do what we otherwise would not be able to do. The life of Christ. Is in us, believer, you are affected by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And I got to thinking about that this morning and pondering that a little bit. And I have access to, to, to this, this power. And so you remember Paul's word in Ephesians 1.19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? Not toward us. Toward us who are water baptized, but toward us who believe. According to the working of his mighty power. In Colossians 1 verse 29, Paul said, to this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Everything changes For born-again believers. And this is really Paul's point, isn't it? Baptism expresses this dynamic change in one's life from bondage to sin to freedom in Christ. Did you hear me? This is what baptism expresses. There's something very dynamic, something real, something living. You don't just have this theoretical union with Christ. You have a vivid, living, dynamic relationship called union. With Christ. Baptism expresses this. And this is what gives you freedom from the bondage of sin. This is the power of the resurrected Christ in me, in you, in Joshua, who will be baptized this morning. You simply can't continue to be slaves of sin. Right? You can't. That's Paul's argument. You can't. And it's not because of you. It's because of him with whom 
You are joined. And so in baptism, you are confessing the very basis of your new life. And what is the very basis of your new life? Union with Christ. This is why he says, reckon yourselves. Think about it. When we say things like preach the gospel to yourself every day, preach it to yourself. And, and the fullness of that gospel, including what Paul has mentioned here, the glory of the Father included in that gospel to which this gospel is, is leading us. And so the one being baptized today and any true baptism a water baptism that is worth anything is a baptism of one who is saying, I have experienced death to sin. I am united with Christ. And the life of Christ is in me. His death and resurrection life are not merely topics of discussion. They're not topics of debate. You're not reading books to try to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. No, He's a reality to you, you see. You know Him. And you want to know Him more. And so you, you know, you have that heart of the Apostle Paul after a long time in Christ says that I may know Him. Included in that verse, the power of His resurrection. Fellowship of His suffering. Power of His resurrection. So Jesus is my life. My life. Take away whatever you will take away. But don't take Him away. Right? I must have Him. I must have Him. I am joined in spirit with Him. And therefore, by His Spirit, He will lead me to freedom from sin that once enslaved me. And this is why you can say, sin will not enslave you. Not because of who you are, but because of who Jesus Christ is. And so water baptism proclaims that eternal life is the gift of God through union with Jesus Christ. Did you hear that? Water baptism doesn't earn anything. It doesn't gain you anything. Water baptism proclaims something. It, it proclaims the very eternal life that is the gift of God through, in, by way of Jesus Christ. Baptism into water will never cleanse the filth of your sin. First Peter chapter 3, verse 21, I believe it is. It'll never cleanse the filth of your sin. Or enable you to live in victory over sin. We've seen many people who have been baptized in water who renounce Christ later on. Who do not overcome sin. It is not the act of baptism that saves or empowers. When I say that, I'm talking about the act of water baptism. That saves or empowers. But it is the living Christ with whom you are joined in faith by the spirit of life who dwells in you. And that's what's being declared today. As our brother Joshua is brought into this pool and, and I go through that process of lowering him into the water and bringing him up. Out of the water. You need to be thinking of that identity of that one who is a sinner by nature. Who is united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And it is and it is that fundamentally that makes the difference between this soul and every other soul. Whether that person has actually been water baptized or not. It's the spiritual reality. And so I want you, as you observe this baptism today, believer, believer, I want you to reflect on your own baptism. I get emotional when I think about my, my baptism. 
I wasn't saved by my baptism. You, you know that I've already said that. It didn't make me more righteous. It didn't add power in my life. But at 15 years old, in Hartsville, South Carolina, I was led out into a lake and put under the water and brought up out of the water. I, I picture it in my mind. It's probably very different than what's in my mind, but you know how, how that goes as you, as you get older. But I, I remember it really vividly, my baptism. Because I knew what I was confessing. I knew with whom I was identifying. I knew. And what I said was that I was going to walk in newness of life, raised even by this power of Christ in me. I was going to walk in newness of life. I was making this commitment, really this public commitment, this public declaration. And in the darkest seasons of my life, and I've told you this before, but in the darkest seasons of my life, one thing that has come to my mind is what I confessed in baptism. That baptism didn't do anything for me, but it was the reality of what was done for me. And He has kept me. That Christ who died and rose again and His Spirit given to me has kept me. And I still remember my... So I would encourage you, remember your baptism today. Think back to when you believed and you identified with Christ. Think about the corresponding truth and realities that were made known in your water baptism. Are you still... Are you still looking to Jesus, trusting in Jesus? And for those of you who are unbelievers, I want you to see the gospel proclaimed in this baptism today. A sinner who has come to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ is confessing that he is who he is only by the grace of God. And he has been brought into... You know what? He's not baptizing himself. I've heard people say, can you baptize yourself? You didn't put yourself into Christ, did you? It makes no sense to baptize yourself. That ruins the picture. No. We were put into Christ. And so we're joined to Christ. And if you're joined to Him, you are dead to sin in Christ. And you are alive to God so that you can live a life like you've never known before. In relationship to God as your Father, Christ as your elder brother, the Holy Spirit as the one who keeps and empowers you. Let's pray.